Welcome, world, to another episode of A24 on the Rocks. I am your host, Kevin Kacon Konachek. Welcome, grab a drink, sit back, and relax as we review yet another of A24's vast movie library in chronological order. But before we get to that first order of business, welcome back, Cole. We missed you, buddy. Good to have you. I missed you guys, too. Cole was missing action. What are you drinking besides codeine over there, <laughs> Yeah, Cole, Cole let's, let's start you out. What do you got going on? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm back from my uh, surgery. I am drinking uh, liquid death to go along with my painkillers. So I'm living it up the sober style. Well, not sober because I am still fucked up, but that's what I'm doing. Glad to be here. All up right. next. Hey, it's Blaze Fitzgerald Ryan the first. Uh, it's not I'm drinking an absolute raspberry and crayon because we like to keep it classy. Next up, we got. Uh, this is Eric. I'm gonna. I, I'm drinking what I call an axe driver because I combined Aquavit with orange juice. Aquavit is from Norway, and you know, like screwdriver. I'm gonna have an axe driver because it's like a Viking dr- driver, you know, something like that. I mean, All it right, makes sense driver. to me. Anyway, I, mean, I like it. Lastly. And this is Kelly, and going by Eric's logic, I'm just drinking an axe on the rocks, because it's just neat (laughs) aquavit. And I guess uh, I'm rounding it out tonight. I'm drinking Red Cabin American Bourbon Whiskey, rested in Cabernet casks, and it's made by Central Standard Craft Distillery here in Milwaukee, and it is damn delicious. But we must get going. So, movie lovers of the world, let's begin. Tonight, we're reviewing the 2014 film While We're Young, an American comedy drama film written and produced by Noah Baumbach. The film stars Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, Adam Driver, and Amanda Seyfried. Its plot centers on a New York-based documentary filmmaker and his wife, a couple in their 40s, who develop a friendship with a couple in their 20s. The film was screened in the special presentation section of the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival, and A24 released it to the United States on March 27th of 2015. So everyone, as we like to do to open up most of these episodes, what were your initial A24 vibes on the film? Did the seemingly ever-present silent opening trip you up? And how did the opening scene with David Bowie's golden years playing in lullaby form set the mood? Eric, start us out. It starts out with a baby. The baby is uh, crying, and so that's annoying for me. I don't like babies. I actually kind of, I would say, somewhat vibed with Ben Stiller a little bit in this film. I, I kind of understand his character and her character in this film right away, being like, hey, we're getting older, we, but we still really want to do whatever we want to do. You know, we want to be able to fly to Paris on a whim's notice or something. I, I also got one more vibe here. Sex in the City versus girls, but with two married couples. Ah. Um, like, you have the a- the actual, like, connection there with girls and Adam Driver, but I felt like this was kind of old New York versus young New York as we get more into the film. Awesome. All right, Blaze, what were your initial vibes of the film? My initial vibes were the, uh, I didn't know how I was walking into the premise, like uh, Eric said. It was kind of like, they could have taken it a lot of ways, and I've heard of Noah 
bomb back, but I've never really seen any of his movies. My initial was apprehension. I thought it was going to be way more of like a rom-com than a dramedy. I really did like the uh, premise of the documentary parts. I thought when they were talking about like the documentary and the editing and the father-in-law and all that stuff, I thought that was like the most captivating part of the movies for me, of the movie for me. Eric, along the lines of like what I thought of, I thought um, if Yes Man was drama comedy, I got a lot of um, Naomi Watts and Ben Stiller's characters going with the flow, and uh, we can talk about it later, but the third act really threw things out of whack. It was really subversive for me, and I just instant was, I liked it at first, and then it kind of like dragged on. All right, Cole, you're going to come up. What do you got next, buddy? As most of you guys know, I'm a big fan of like the, the like slice of life movies with minimal uh, stakes. At you know, it's not world ending or anything like that. Uh, I liked kind of more of the grounded approach. It did kind of get pretty chaotic towards the end, but uh, I liked how it made me feel a lot of things about a lot of different people and different characters throughout the movie as they kind of swerved their path through you know do I, I like this character this character sucks and they find their middle grounds towards the end um i like the overall the cinematography and the this is the vibes and stuff i thought it was a pretty uh good feelings good vibes to the movie awesome kelly finish this up what do you think yep agreed good vibes something that eric just said was the old school new york versus new school was a theme that I quite liked and the way that they explored it. And something else that Eric and I discussed was out of all of the previous A24 films that we watched that kind of follow in this vein of this like modern day slice of life kind of piece, this one stood out as more robust and artistic to me. It seemed more well done. It's a lot different than Laggies or Bling Ring or all of these other kind of movies that we've seen already. This one stood out a lot as something that there's just more oomph to it for lack of a better term um and i quite enjoyed that and i appreciated Absolutely. it and for my part I, um as the movie opens up the first thing i take note of of course is the song that's playing um the golden years by david bowie even though it's in uh, lullaby form i thought that was interesting and then the lovely one-liner that we get right off the bat with ben stiller and naomi watts's characters are trying to calm the newborn with forgetting what the lines are to three little pigs they just look at each other and go what the fuck do we do now and it's all they could manage like how often do you think every new set of parents say that phrase in a given day during the first let's say three months of birth eric uh well i i would hope like by the time they're actual parents they've read some books and know how to hold the newborn at least from my experience most parents that after they have their kid they catch along pretty quickly uh i've definitely been in that situation though before with like my my cousin's kids uh, where I, I'm just like, how do I hold this uh, alien being here? What do I say to comfort it? But then other times, I don't know, I, I've been more comfortable around a kid if it's a little more tired and not like wagging its head everywhere. But yeah, I I, uh, I kind of do, <laughs> I, I got that feel for sure um, when I've held a newborn before. Did anyone else relate to that scene or more to like Josh and Cornelio's characters in that moment, just like holding that kid and just kind of like being, oh, I'd, I'd probably be in that same situation. No, I was going to say, yeah, I, uh, not, not, um, well, I'm a, you know, not a, a kid lover, not a big fan of kids. Uh, a lot of times they're loud and gross and kind of just bother me. And yeah, if I'm in that situation, a lot of times I'm just like, I would like you to go away. Could you, if your parents could come take you, that would be cool. Um, 
but yeah, like, I mean, growing up, I had three sisters. Two of them are younger, and watching them, there's definitely times when I was younger, and like they would not stop crying. I'm like, I don't know what to do with this thing, and then I just call my parents and be like, I'm sorry, your date night's ruined, but this thing, <laughs> like monster that you created, won't shut up, so you need to come home. Just no chill. Just get over here, take care of this kid. I'm done. <laughs> All yep. right, Blaze, you had to chime in there. Yeah, um, I definitely um, and com- uh, I like kids in small bursts, kind of like uh, Naomi Watts and Ben Stiller in this film. They definitely like don't hate children like Cole and <laughs> Eric. I uh, I grew up. <laughs> I have a sister that I'm 14 years older. It's actually her 18th birthday day, and then I have a brother that I'm 21 years older than. So I've been around babies my entire life, and I love them for like three hours. And then, you know, then it's time for the parents to come back because I'm very like, it's like, I wish they were more like cats where, you know, you just had to put a bowl down and you know, <laughs> make sure they don't run away. That is why I have a cat. That, that's beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, kittens. that was a very, very human emotion that I think they both uh, felt. You know, even though it's kind of seemed like they were lying to themselves at some points, uh, I do believe that uh, kids generally gross them out, at least at the beginning of the film. And they did a great job. Fair enough. So as the movie progresses, we get to Josh and Cornelia having a conversation about spontaneity. And the line is basically, a month is still in the realm of spontaneity, right? Did anyone else feel like that was incredibly, um, you know, poignant and relative to, like, their lives in general? Like, I I feel like spontaneity... Yes. It's such a a concept that it never really ever comes to reality. Kelly, you had Mm -hmm. a, a quick comment there. What was your feeling on that? That was when like the humor really started to manifest itself. I feel like in the film, and for me, uh, finding exactly where we're gonna rest and like what kind of big world critique are they gonna make within small relationships? And with this, like we can be spontaneous as long as it's a month in advance, as long as da 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 da. They're like freedom is just like this possibility that we could do it at any given time, even when we're not utilizing it. Just love knowing that we could. Meanwhile, they're kind of in a stagnant spot with Ben Stiller's character working on his movie for 10 years and not finishing it. And they're stagnant, but they feel free because in theory, they could maybe go out and do something. And maybe that gives them a sense of superiority over other people that they feel might be tied down, but not that they're going to admit that to themselves or anything. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is it was the first part where I was like, I like the kind of humor that we're going with right here. This is going to be good. Yeah, that was my first vibe as well. It's like, oh, man, they, they're witty. They're a good couple on screen together. And I think that their lines throughout the film um, are going to be excellent. Did anyone else share a, um, a similar vibe on that scene? Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, with the, when it comes to like spontaneity, I mean, to go to Paris within a month, I think, is still pretty spontaneous. I mean, it's it would be a, a hard thing to just do because that's a pretty long you know time that you'd have to take but yeah i thought it was kind of funny because you know i i i feel like i live in a similar vein where i'm like yeah i don't have any kids and i'm not married so i can do whatever i want and then i'm like well i got work i got my bills i got things to pay and yeah i travel for work a lot but a lot of times it's just i wake up at 4 30 and go to work and then i 
come back to the hotel at like seven and I'm just go to bed. So yeah, I travel a lot, but I don't fucking see anything. I don't do anything exciting or whatnot. So definitely kind of hit home where I was just like, yeah, I could be spontaneous going to Paris in a month. I could totally do that. And then I, I don't. And I haven't been to Paris. Ever, I love how so. this movie makes you think about your life right away, immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're just Very like, much. oh, I'm thinking about myself in this situation. And throughout the entire 90 minutes, I felt that all the way uh, through. For sure. Yeah, every, every scenario throughout this whole film i thought was very relatable to almost any well anyone at a certain level um yeah i just that's why i love these like slice of life movies because it's just so real and you could just kind of feel what they're you can feel the same emotions because you lived them or dealt with them yourselves right so do we feel like our director is responsible then for creating that vibe or is it the actors themselves doing it with the lines that kind of bring this to life what do you guys think uh, I think the director, well, he wrote it too, you know, and he usually writes and directs a lot of the films uh, he's a part of. And so, yeah, I think he very much intended uh, this vibe. And he went on He went on to write and direct uh, Marriage Story. And Marriage Story is like one of, one of my favorite films too. I think that a lot of his films, though, in general, uh, have this kind of slice of life feel to it. I don't know. He, I think he's very much known for making this kind of vibe in his films. Blaze, got anything to add on that one? Oh, yeah. I think it was definitely a 50-50 split. I think Noah Baumbach did a really good job at setting this table, setting the story. And I thought all four lead actors did a really good job at, um, you know, purveying the story that he wanted to tell. I thought Ben Stiller did way better than he usually acts. I'm not a big Ben Stiller fan. And Adam Driver, I told you guys in the group chat, 20 minutes in, I'm like, I love Adam Driver's character. He is the perfect, like, hipster vibe. Noah Baumbach did a great job setting the scene, but these uh, actors really knocked it down, especially in the first two-thirds of the movie. So speaking of Adam Driver, let's introduce our characters. So we meet Jamie, right, Adam Driver's character, as he shows up to audit, quote-unquote, the college class that Josh teaches and proceeds to fanboy all over him. As a documentarian himself, he and Josh hit it off and become friends. What did you think of Jamie initially? Blaze initially liked him. But all the rest of you, what were your first impressions of his character, his motives, and how Adam Driver brought him to life? Kelly, you first. Love him. It's like um, when we watched Laggies and I explained Sam Rockwell, I was like, there's just, there's such charming people that I immediately liked him. uh, And I loved how much of a hipster he was. And I definitely thought he was so cool. There's one part where they even show him like holding a beer and he's like holding it with his index and thumb and like the rest of his fingers are all thrown out. And it's like, that's surely something that he just decided to do. And that added so much to his character, just these body motions. And he really just embodied it. And his he that's the thing, too, is he does act with his whole entire body. He puts it all in there. And it's, it's just a love for the craft that I think is so palatable when you're watching him. So. Loved it. Thought that it wouldn't be the same movie if he didn't play that character. Yeah, hundred well. percent agree. I thought that he really um, embodied what that character was going for, and because so much of the plot focused on that character and kind of what his motives were throughout the film, it was um, it was really refreshing to see such a really great job. Did anyone else uh, have anything they wanted to throw in on Mr. Driver? Adam Driver did a phenomenal job as an actor, uh, really bringing this character to life. Uh, I read that James Franco was uh, originally they were trying to get him for this role, and I think that would have been way worse. So I think Adam Driver did a much better job of portraying this uh, very like likable guy that was very infectious and infatuated and, and had 
just a lot of passion and stuff and it was obviously that spilled over to the other characters it was part of the story and the plot but uh, there was some things that kind of you know started to make me question his motives mostly it was the whole like every time they hung out and the bill came he never reached for it and that's like a big pet peeve of mine where it's like you know if you're gonna it's nice to pay for a meal for people and stuff like that but if you like it's just expected even if you're like going on a date and stuff like that i feel like it's kind of like come on at least you know show a a little gratitude or something don't just like sit there and be like he's got it cole do you think that was a uh, social commentary on the fact that they were young folk and that's what young folk do yeah i think it was definitely kind of a play on you know this is the old professor guy well he's got money and stuff like that well fuck man you're 25 or whatever you you should be able to pay for your own meals if you're going out to eat like you should never i don't know like at least a rule of thumb for me is i never go out to eat with someone at a place that i couldn't afford like i unless it's some i don't know crazy work thing or whatever but you know, if I'm just going to hang out with a person, I'm going to go to a place that I can afford so I can pay for it myself. There you if go. they pay for it, whatever, that's fine. But so Cole, the way I live my life. Cole brought up the age gap, and that's obviously a, a huge plot point early on in this film, right? Jamie and Darby are 25, while Josh and Cornelia are damn near 20 years their senior. From a real-world perspective, would this be considered weird or frowned upon in a social group? Do any of you have older friends? And did our director get this vibe right? I don't think it's creepy at all, especially because Laggies was still like mm-hmm. high schoolers, which that is, was the whole creepy aspect. This is adults and adults, um, and I think that that age, like, it's just not weird after a while. You're grown and you're working, and they're grown and working. It reminded me of um, my coworker who is about uh, the older couple's age coming over to mine and Eric's house, who is like the younger couple's age, and we're just—it just feels like we're all we're all equals if we were go to go out to dinner too i'm sure we would switch back and forth and i would follow cole's rule of we're not going anywhere that i couldn't afford i think that it's just normal especially if you're in a big city too and especially if you are working in the same industry yeah i kind of the same sentiment as kelly you know i work with a lot of the crews i work with are guys that are you know as old as my dad or even older and you know we go out to the bar and one of my closest friends now as i've met through work is paco and he's you know 53 he's as old as my dad and hell we go to the movies because he's a big star wars nerd like me so we go hit up the movie theaters and stuff while we're out working in town and hang out go to the bar and you know throw some back and you know i'm the age of his son and he's the age of my dad but hell my dad and i don't go to the <laughs> movies but i'll fucking go to the movies with paco and see thor love and thunder all day long baby <laughs> Shout out, Paco. Paco. Cheers. Absolutely. Cole, that's beautiful. Uh, I love that all of us kind of have some sort of story or some kind of relevance that we can tie to this movie. I, too, have plenty of friends that I would consider older than me but are still close, and age is not a number, or only a number is what they say, right? And I think that this movie does a really good job of commenting on that, and the director does a great job of setting it up as a clear conflict, but not necessarily making it an impossible conflict that the characters can get past. And I really enjoyed that about this film. So as we kind of continue on here, there was a small part in this movie that I really wanted us to stop and talk about, and it involved the kittens. Good cop and bad cop might be the best name I've ever heard for a pair of kittens (laughs) in my entire life. And I may steal that for a future (laughs) pair of kittens in my life. 
Did anyone else stop and pause and go, that is just awesome at that scene? That was definitely an audible <laughs> nose exhale Same. from me on yep. that one. Oh, yeah, good. that was adorable. Glad I wasn't Thumbs alone. up on my end. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Woo! So the first scene in this film that really struck me from a visual standpoint was the montage scenes where Jamie and Darby were using all of the old technology, the VCR player, records, board games, etc., while Josh and Cornelia are glued to their screens. The young were using the old stuff, and the old were using all of the young people's stuff. What do you think about this scene and the cinematography of this film in general? Eric, start us off. Yeah, uh, I could totally, I, I totally see what he's trying to say with that, because I, I think anybody who's on Facebook nowadays can see that uh, older people have kind of just taken over Facebook. There's older people, when they start figuring out this uh, newer technology, they get really obsessed with it. They're like, oh, how neat, how cool is this? And younger people, I think nowadays, they're aware of, I think, the damage that social media has done in general to our world. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying social media is completely horrible, but yeah, it has done some damage to our world. And, uh, I think there is kind of a movement from younger people to start creating more things in general, to try to get away from social media a little bit. But then of course you will have those social media influencers who, uh, you know, give us all a bad name, but, um, but yeah, like I, I think that younger people, they are like kind of trying to get away from things like Facebook and uh, a few of the other social media apps and everything. And I do think that was reflected in this film, uh, how the younger people, like, they're getting into vinyl and stuff. They're getting, I mean, VCR is definitely not. I do, I've do. i never met anybody uh, that still has a VCR, but, uh, like, my friends and I will still play N64. Uh, Cole still has a VCR, apparently. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I actually felt that, like that was realistic how older people were represented with technology in this film and how younger people were. It's, it's definitely realistic, in my opinion. Absolutely, and I think our director was very intentional in that fact, especially because the entire theme of this movie is based on the idea of young versus old and what that looks like. Uh, Kelly, did you have any other uh, opinions on how that scene or the cinematography in general? Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm also mad because I was going to bring it up <laughs> as my favorite part of the movie. You can still say it, though. It's <laughs> still your favorite. <laughs> So the just the pacing of the movie leading up to that part, too. So when it's just um, our original couple, it, the movie kind of isn't that fast paced to start with. It's an interesting premise. Um, I also we didn't talk on how, like, how it starts with that quote as well that kind of follows us through of just let let the youth in basically is what I took from it. But it's kind of slow for a while. It's going to class. It's doing that documentary. And then once the young people come in, they quicken it up so fast and then they do that hypercut of technology of like you said the older using everything that's new and fed to us then the young ones are like we're offline at some capacity i like that cornelia says something like they have everything that we had when we were growing up and they're flat but the way that they set it up it just looks so nice it doesn't <laughs> look like junk um and that's one of those things too that there's kids now in Nowadays, a lot of their parents are like Gen X and the elder millennials, as we call them. They're getting further and further away from even wanting to use phones because kids don't ever want to do what their parents are doing. And that's something that gives me a lot of hope for these kids. And so I hope that that kind of stuff keeps up. But I just love that that scene existed because it's also a bold choice because in five years time, it won't make as much sense because the new technology is going to be dated. Even to the point where when those two are texting back and forth, 
one the Ben Stiller's got like the new iOS and Adam Driver's got like the old one. In five years' time, nobody's gonna really probably know even that was a active choice that was made to point out. So the fact that they went with that I thought was really great because it will date them, is what I'm trying to say as well. But loved that scene, loved that it exists, and loved how fast paced it was Fantastic. as well. Kelly, what's your favorite part though, uh, really quickly when Pensler Josh was like, let's Google it, and then Adam Driver's character. So Eric and I have watched this movie before. I don't remember when we watched it uh, years back, but the only thing I really remembered from this movie on the first go is when the four of them are all sitting at the young couple's flat, and they're figuring out what Amanda Seyfried's ice cream tastes reminiscent of. And so Ben Stiller pulls out his phone, and he's like, I'm just going to Google that. And they go, no, no, no. We're just going to, let's just think about it. And then they sit there a little longer, and he goes, let's just not know. Yeah, let's and just I not know what it is. Yeah. say that to Eric that was a good the line. time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I would never do that, personally. I'm the first person to Google damn near everything, and it's almost an instinct. So when that scene came around for me personally, I was like, wait, that's, that's actually kind of interesting. What if I didn't know? Then it would just be a question. That's okay, right? <laughs> because Google really is that yes. all answering, encompassing everything. Like if you don't know an answer, go on YouTube or Google. Like it's right there. But that takes away some of the fun sometimes. So, nah, nah. I need information. Give me the information. All right, Cole. Fuck go ahead. What else do you got on this scene? Did you enjoy it? What'd you take away from it? Yeah, I mean, I I love the cinematography. Love the dichotomy between the uh, the old young technology, not technology, and stuff. Definitely made me uh, think about my technology usage and my screen time and stuff like that you know i my i'm on my phone all the time because it's also my my personal phone my work phone i my email all that stuff obviously we do the podcast i'm on my computer i have my hobbies are you know i like to play video games and watch movies and stuff so made me really kind of reflect on that and then being post-surgery last week i was bedridden all week so all i did was screen uh, you know, and I thought, wow, I probably could have read a book or two. Haven't done that in a minute. So I, uh, I, I, you know, have a book that I'm thinking about. Maybe I'll start this time. So that was, uh, you know, maybe a positive coming out of this film. I love it. Blaze, did you have anything you wanted to add on this scene since we've all had a chance to toss in here? Yeah, I thought you all said very, very astute, cool things about it. Cause I definitely agree with everything you guys say. I have to say, um, that the montage in general was a ballsy move because usually for me, montages mean, hey, we need a five minute clip to get this thing to 90 minutes so we can release it in theaters. But mm -hmm. uh, this one actually felt like it had substance. And like you guys said, um, just the compare and contrast of young versus old technology versus, you know, more grassroots, more, you know, living in the moment sort of thing. And then since we're talking about cinematography, the production design was amazing. Every scene felt lived in, every scene felt like it was a real place. And I really, uh, you know, we talk about slice of life movies. I thought whoever did the production design was amazing because I, when I saw Adam Driver's flat, I was like, I need to live there. That is like exactly where I need to live. I know it's three thousand dollars a month, but I need to live there. So yes, I, but that's exactly you guys the vibe. Said. You got it. You nailed it, though. Like, that's what they want to do, right? The director wants you to feel like you want to be there. You want to be part of these friends. You want to be in this place with these people. And he did a great job of doing that. So I just really appreciated that. So all of our phone conversations leads me to my next scene question. During a lunch date, we see Josh and Cornelia are with Marina and Fletcher. And they are discussing the phenomenon of when one person picks up their phone, everybody else uses it as an excuse to pick up theirs. 
I felt that there was a lot of realism to this scene. Fletcher goes on to compare phone usage today to women exposing their ankles in the 1800s and how it used to be a scandal and now it's just become commonplace. So a lot of us have shared kind of our opinions on phone usage in social situations and dates and family gatherings, but did anyone else enjoy that scene or feel that it continued to kind of make this more relevant to all of our lives? Kelly. Kevin, I'm not even trying to be lazy, but I think you and I pulled the same favorite things from this movie because that's my second favorite uh, scene. And that they say everybody thinks that they have the most important thing to get to right at this moment. I'm like, well said, film. I know exactly what you mean. When I went to college, my phone didn't work for two years. So I got very used to just not having a phone when everybody else got really, really into their phone because we were all away from home and trying to make friends. And uh, I think that that really like changed my perspective on phone usage for a while. And then the pandemic happened, and I feel like now it's really got its hold on me. But that just, when, like, I went out to, like, lunch and stuff, um, just, like, for college lunches, it felt like everybody was just on their phones. And I know it makes me sound like an old person. It's like you can't even comment on these things without feeling like you are 45 (laughs) or older. But I just, I thought that that was a really great scene, and I liked the lightness to it, but you know, a little bit of realism in there, a little bit of we all feel that way sometimes, and we're all guilty of it. Absolutely. Uh, I felt the same way. It's kind of interesting thinking about our own lives, right, as 20-something, late 20-somethings and early 30-somethings, seeing the progression of cell phone usage, right? So getting a cell phone at 16 or 17 in high school was a flip phone. There was nothing to it. Having a flip phone in college, not having a smartphone until later in life, and like seeing where it is now, imagine some of our viewers only knowing or cell phone life the way it is today. I just thought it was very interesting and kind of brought a really cool commentary, even in 2015, right? So this film is six years ago, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Now what it is today is even exponentially, insanely greater, and it's still making the commentary in 2015. If this scene was in today's world, it'd be even more poignant as we're having this conversation. At one point in this film, I literally wrote on the top of my notes, TOO REAL in all caps at the top of the page. Did anyone else find themselves really, like, we've talked about relating to this film, but it felt like the entire intention of the director was to make every viewer feel like this movie was about them, and he did such a great job. Did anybody else want to toss in on that idea in general? Eric? I do think that they were, like, Hollywood versions of uh, some of, you know, like, characters that we can relate to. Like, it, I didn't feel like uh, they were 100% realistic all the time. Like, Adam Driver's character, I was actually going to say, I I uh, did not like him from the start. He was a good character, found him interesting. I, I didn't actually like him as a person. <laughs> um, and they kind of exaggerated all of these points about the characters that they were trying to do. He was overly hipster sometimes, you know, and the girl was, like, kind of overly millennial, you know, and... I, I do feel like they were kind of exaggerating these points about each of these characters a lot. Uh, but that is, you know, when you make a movie, you gotta got to do that because you got to get people to know these characters within an hour and a half to two hours. Blaze, did you enjoy the director's attempt to make you feel during this movie? Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I, I agree with Eric that I think Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried's characters were a little over-exaggerated time. But I do feel like... I hate to say it because I'm only 31, but I felt more related to um, Ben Stiller's character than anyone else 
basically because uh, he has this passion project that he works really, really hard on, and it's never going to be good enough. And I have like two or three of those going on this in podcast. my life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> this podcast. That, damn it, that demand for per- perfection versus uh, uh, Adam Driver's. Uh, you know, just go with the flow. Hey, you know what? Let's fake it a little bit. You know, what, whatever you know the people want to see when mm-hmm. you know. When Ben Stiller, he probably could have cut the Turkish politics out, but he couldn't. So, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's fair. Well, there's a bit of uh, absurdity in this film, too. The Turkish politics, like, in, in the film, like, his film was six and a yeah. half hours. There, there was definitely some absurdity in this film, and it was meant to be there. So I, I do feel like the exaggeration of some of the characters probably was purposeful. A hundred percent. And that leads actually perfectly into the next scene that I want to talk about, which is the awesomely juxtaposed scene of the mom class versus the hip hop dance class. So the mom class scene, right? I truly believe that this is what people imagine hell to be like. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else feel like muting the television or looking away during the choo choo song? Cause like that was just absolutely brutal. That's another cinematography point out is just the color of the walls and the zoom in on these musicians' faces that just like puts it really in your face. And I swear they cranked up the volume like 10% just for that scene as well. I feel like I felt my anxiety rising with the character as, as she's sitting there, as Cornelia's looking at all the children. I was just like, get out of there, get out of there now. And she did, and it was just brilliant. Yeah. My, my note during that scene was just, uh, babies are the worst. The end of that comment, I was like, I hate everything that's happening to this scene right now. I want the wiggles out of my life. You know what is funny about both those scenes, though? Like, since, you know, they're like, like Kelly said, they could directly compare to contrast them, and they made the baby class seem so much worse. Cornelia, she doesn't seem comfortable in either classes, you know? And I think that's a real Mm -hmm. uh, testament to her character in that she's not ready to get rid of her youth. But at the same time, she's not cool enough to be Amanda Seyfried, you know, so she's really lost in that. And I think it picks back up again when they're about to do the ayahuasca and she's still like dancing by herself. And it's just awkward and weird. And they're dancing together. I'm like, well, that's how old people would dance to Tupac. So I get that. So but I thought that was interesting how she was like trying to keep up with everyone in hip hop class. And she seemed way ahead of everyone. So I know we just got done talking about a scene that can like compares the young versus the old, but I also feel like this is exactly what the following scene what did, right? You have the mom class scene, then you have that dancing scene, and now we have that theme of comparing mom life to young person life and was prevalent throughout the whole film. So how do you think our director did in making us feel that pull between parent life and the choice to not have children? I know we've kind of already touched on this, but it was really apparent in this moment. Eric, what did you think about these two scenes? Okay, I, I do think that the Tupac... <laughs> Tupac just kind of went on a little bit too long and felt very out of place in this film. Yeah, it kind of made me cringe a little bit, not gonna lie. Um, But I do think that they did a good job of comparing having a family and, you know, not having a family when you're a married couple. Like I was saying earlier, I can see that all the time. Like my friends are, you know, starting to have kids and stuff. They they definitely do a good job of touching on that feeling of like uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. but like at yep. the same time it's like i'm i am very happy where i'm at too that is where it delivers that slice of slice of life again they kind of um try to hit home like you should do what's happiest what makes you the happiest for yourself you know right kelly uh touch on that idea of the the fomo the fear of missing out how did you think that applied to this movie in general and kind of was a theme throughout most of it 
Yeah, Eric, that uh, actually, I didn't think of that myself, but that's kind of what has been at the tip of my tongue, wanting to describe a lot of the things that they cover in this movie. If you don't commit to one thing or the other, you have the potential to do either. But in the meantime, you're doing nothing. You get stuck. So <laughs> that's kind of what it is. If you're so fearful of missing out on one thing or the other, you're not doing either one. So you just got to jump headfirst into one or the other. So And 10 years that's... later, a documentary is still not done. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and or ten years later, you decide you didn't want to have a kid. Maybe you wanted to have a kid. Now it's too late. So, maybe you should have shelled it out and permanent like decision one way or the other, or else the books never closed. And God bless this couple because they're they're so nice together. And they stay nice together, even though that's clearly an unresolved issue that keeps being brought up, especially when there's any conflict for them. But yeah, well said, Eric. That is kind of the theme that was at the tip of my tongue. I liked it. So later we have a classing, classic shopping montage, and Josh gets a suave-looking fedora. All right, Josh and Jamie now are continuing to hang out, and we see Josh morph into an odd, younger parody of himself using Jamie as the influence. This hat later is the butt of a great one-liner from Fletcher when he says, You're an old man with a hat. <laughs> so I ask you, what did you think of Josh's fedora, and would you ever, slash have you ever, worn one in public? Cole, you're first. Um, <laughs> have I worn a fedora in public? What? Yeah, because uh, Bavarian festivals are awesome, and uh, <laughs> I have a green fedora with a feather on it. It's pretty freaking sick, although it's not technically a fedora, but uh, yeah, I rocked the shit out of that guy. Uh, that one-liner is hilarious, uh, and also Fletcher is uh, a member of the Beastie Boys, which I just got a, a huge kick out of seeing him play that. Uh, although uh, the Fletcher character can go die in a hole because during that scene he, uh, you know, just says that you know when when did Goonies become a good movie? Like fuck that guy. <laughs> it's always been exactly. a good movie. So excuse me, he could go fucking fall off a cliff for all I care. <laughs> yep. But um, I'm with you. No, I uh, yeah, I I thought that you know just the fact like the statement of you're an old man with a hat and there's just how deeply that could cut a person because it's not like he's insulting you but he is insulting you so hard but just like the string of uh, oh words, yeah uh, is is great i really loved it all right who else wants to admit to a wearing a fedora in public who's next never nope i nope none of I you have when i oh, yeah bless uh, when I was, eric yeah, uh, 21, 22, I played a show, uh, and I wore a fedora. So uh, I was with you on that show, yeah. actually. We were in Black Rocks in Marquette, and Ska I wore band. suspenders and a fedora for that Okay, wait, that, that show. one I didn't wear a fedora. I did wear a fedora at Black Rocks Brewery in Marquette, but uh, not that specific show because I was dressing up as Gus Fring from, uh, from Breaking Bad because our band name was Los Pollos Hermanos, and it was in That's the middle right. of uh, it was. The, the Breaking Bad time. But yeah, sure no, was. there was another time I played like a solo acoustic show and I wore a fedora and now I uh, cringe thinking about how I probably look like <laughs> fucking Jason Mraz. All right. So quick <laughs> offside. My first fedora purchase of my life was at the House of Blues in South Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, when I watched Hootie and the Blowfish play a show. But because it was the House of Blues and I had just watched Blues Brothers for the first time, I thought I need a Blues Brothers hat, so I bought a fedora and rocked it in high school, and I'm not ashamed. So, moving on. As the movie progresses, we get introduced to Leslie Breitbart, played by the late, great Charles Grodin. 
Leslie is a successful film director, and Josh has never really seen eye-to-eye with his father-in-law. Their back-and-forth relationship throughout the rest of the film is excellent and fairly crucial to the entirety of the plot. What did you think of Charles Grodin's performance and the character of Leslie Breitbart in general? Kelly, you're up first. I think Leslie was a fine older man. I loved that when they went to this hipster kind of place, Yash was asking him, how do you even know this place? And he's like, I go here all the time. Because old people come full circle and become cool again mm-hmm. is the thing. And I also think that he got he had us a bad rep. Every single time that Josh wants to say anything bad about Leslie, Josh is the one perpetrating it on screen every single time. He's the one who's got an issue. Leslie doesn't seem like a bad guy. Justice for Leslie. Justice for Leslie. Eric, what do you think about Mr. Groden's character and how uh, they portrayed Josh's father-in-law? He was like so like all-knowing, and um, he definitely gave Josh the constructive criticism he needed at most points. You know, I I almost felt like that almost was like unrealistic. Like father-in-laws, I don't know. Maybe in in movies they're a little more portrayed as being the ball busters or being the people that don't really understand the main character. But this guy seemed like a father to Josh himself, too. I I felt like he was such a wiser, older man that gave uh, Josh the constructive criticism he needed all along, and that was part a big part of Josh's character is that he wasn't able to accept constructive criticism about his work. 100%, um, and you could see that clearly when Leslie referred to him as son multiple times, and Mm -hmm. it felt it was genuine. Like, you really truly Mm -hmm. believed that he was his son. I mean, he has the best interest of his daughter in mind 100% in that situation. So uh, I I enjoyed his character. Anybody else want to toss in on what they thought about um, Leslie Uh, and Charles Grodin's performance of him? uh, I put underutilized. I really liked him when he was in the film. I thought, like Eric said, that he was a really good guiding voice in Josh's life, but Josh was like kind of like the teenage kid who wasn't listening to him and focused on his own thing, even though that he was trying to be him. So it was very like father-son relationship. And then my other note is, just because of, I'm sure we'll get to it, but the terrible uh, third act of the film, um, his ham-fisted truth in documentary speech uh, while uh, Josh was chastising Jamie. Like I said, very ham-fisted and not needed, but uh, again, he did a great job, but uh, poor choice of Breitbart uh, in 2020 hindsight. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight. Yeah. Uh The ayahuasca scene. So this scene in general for me had a whole bunch to unpack, and we clearly kind of saw what happened where the juxtaposition of getting called and invited to a barbecue and saying, no, I need to go to an ayahuasca cleansing ceremony instead just continues the theme of this old versus new that we've been talking about in general. Uh, for those of us listeners that don't know, ayahuasca is a uh, hallucinogen uh, that is used by the indigenous people of the South American Amazon basin to basically have spiritual journeys. And our characters, of course, decide that they want to cleanse their lives and breathe out fear, as the shaman says. There was some fun one-liners about forgetting the shape of a pineapple and, of course, Cornelia confusing Jamie with Josh and kissing him once and then deciding not to do it again. So what did you take away from this scene? Was it just another attempt at making our main characters feel young, or was there something more to embarking on a soul-searching journey with two people you just met? Cole, you're up first. Um, well, first off, given the you know the topical nature of uh, Aaron Rodgers 
my quarterback. Respect ayahuasca. Um, I'm all about it. Uh, I think uh, everyone should do it. Apparently, it's a great experience, and you become an MVP. Uh, but in the uh, in the film, in the, the way that it was portrayed, I don't know if it really brought a whole lot to it. Really, the only thing it brought was the additional of um, uh, Josh's wife kissing Jamie, and that kind of got brought up. But then that never really uh, led to anything because Josh kissed Jamie's girlfriend, and then they like you know Josh confronted his wife about it, and then they moved on. They were adults about it and moved on and went on. So I really don't think it was anything added anything extra. It was funny scene, and it was funny to see like the dichotomy or, or whatever between like you want to come to a barbecue and it's like nah man i'm gonna go get fucked up on ayahuasca in a weird dude shaman's house and throw up with a bunch of strangers and see egyptian stuff so it was just a funny scene but unneeded hell yeah eric what do you think i think that that was uh sort of realistic in a way where sometimes when you trip on um hallucinogens you actually don't really end up finding the me- meaning of life or anything. You just kind of like either throw up or feel like shit or, uh, you know, you-, you don't actually end up seeing the other side of the, the door of perception, as uh, Aldous Huxley would say. Yeah, like, I, I don't know. I-, I think it was just kind of a plot device to get uh, Naomi Watts to ki- kiss Adam Driver's character. I, I think that uh, it-, it was <laughs> kind of... Im- it like hit home the point of these older people trying to fit in, but also introduce that plot to voice as well. hundred percent. Kelly, did you have anything you want to throw in on that scene? What'd you think? Agreed on that. Uh, it would just, it was used for the kissing thing, but also it was used. There's this reoccurring moment where Jamie will be recording Josh. And this is one of them where he shows up with his little camera and it comes into the musical score as well, where you hear the beeping that goes with the light on his camera. And I'm like, oh, that's extremely sinister. I wonder what's going to happen with that. Spoiler alert, nothing really. It just becomes this reoccurring thing where he just films him all the time. I thought there was going to be a documentary about him at the end or a big piece of blackmail. But that was another piece. And then just to touch on ayahuasca, that is... In all of my research, that's my favorite idea of a psychedelic. I've not taken any. I'm saving myself for ayahuasca one day. But I love that that is their drug of choice as well and that they showed a whole ceremony. And even the shaman, in quotes, leading them through it kind of looked at Ben Stiller's character when he took it and he let it dribble down his face and kind of gave him a glance of like, what are, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> right. So even like the, the all seeing shaman is now judging the guy for not taking yeah. the drug correctly. Like I think that again just like relates to oh you're just an old man here hanging out with a bunch of young guys trying to have fun and it just was a continual commentary on that whole piece. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, Blaze, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Uh, yeah. Um, like I said, I really uh, agree with everyone. I think it was uh driven as a plot device for Cornelia to kiss Jamie. Uh, But the other thing that I really think that it uh, tried to convey was, again, like how out of their element they were hanging out with this young hipster culture. And it was almost a parody of, you know, these kids finding, you know, the new religion, the new age. You know, uh, you see a previous scene where they're at an uh, alley beach party, right? Like that is so 2014 to have. So... You go to um, this, you know, drug taking, uh, you know, spirit cleansing facility or, you know what I'm saying, 
I, I there was one really funny part uh, where they're like it's the next morning and they're like having their hangover and Benzler's like, huh, the shaman drives the Vespa and. I thought that was like really funny how like phony everyone is. And I think that's when the onion starts peeling, so to say, as far as who everyone really is in the movie. So it was a good setup to the second half of the movie. Right. And so let's kind of transition there. So from there, the movie focuses on Josh and Jamie's competing film projects, the slow degradation of their friendship, Kent, the suicidal veteran from Afghanistan, Josh's attempt at finishing his 10-year-old film project, and of course, the dramatic conclusion and reveal. So, as we're kind of continuing towards the conclusion of our film, Blaze, you alluded to what you feel to be the ham-fisted conclusion where we have Leslie standing on stage giving a large speech about the uh, integrity of documentarians and how you need to have truth in film. And then you have, of course, Ben Stiller confronting Adam Driver's character while aggressively approaching him with accusations that we kind of knew would eventually lead to nothing. So as we kind of saw the conclusion there, what were your thoughts on the way that the cinematography and the director's uh, intent was with that scene in general and kind of how they moved towards the conclusion? Eric, why don't you start us? I actually didn't really like how they cut back and forth between the speech and him confronting uh, Adam Driver's character. I I, I think it was a little too off-putting. I get the connection there, but I think this actually leads to a larger point about the film that I I kind of felt it was very hyper-edited, and it kind of jumped you into new scenes constantly. It kind of swept the rug from under you a a lot. It had to do with the writing plus the editing of the film, and then that scene, too, it felt like, I don't know, like a very rushed conclusion in a way. I I guess Ben Stiller's character needed to be completely embarrassed to kind of get his life back, you know? It needed a more concrete conclusion instead of this kind of rushed ending, in my opinion. Kelly, what did you think about that uh, particular scene? I agree. I don't. I didn't like the cutbacks and forth. It felt like it was trying to create too much conflict that wasn't really there. It was, kind of fell flat for me at that point. Uh, I just feel like that the last third of the movie is the weakest part of it, um, and I think that Blaze kind of said that best it just is just doesn't quite fit doesn't feel the same as everything leading up to it absolutely cool go ahead i understand where you guys are coming with with the cutbacks and stuff but i i when i watched when i was watching the scene i didn't really care for it but the lead up to the following scene where they like kind of really built it up about how he's confronting him about not being you know a true documentarian and he has to be you know you can't stretch the truth. You can't be fake and all this stuff. It flips back to the, you know, giving his speech and then they go and he's like, you know, Ben Stiller's going to get his revenge. He's going to get his comeuppance or whatever. And he takes Adam driver to the table and he's like, tell him what you did. And he's like, I played with the timelines a little bit. They're like, so the guy wasn't in Afghanistan. No, he was like, the story is still there. And they're like, so what's the problem? And I, I really, I like that scene a lot where, you know, I've definitely had some of those points where I thought, you know, I was like, oh, you know what? Fuck this guy. I got this guy. And then you like, you know, are like realize that, oh, no, it doesn't really fucking matter because it's such a small, like little thing that you hyper focused on that you've exploded in your own mind. But then from the outside, it's like you just seem like the crazy person. Like, yeah, he isn't, uh, uh, you know, the perfect person, but 
what he is trying to film is a good story. So, and, you know, I, I really liked that scene. So I think the the lead up to it, like the cutbacks, yeah, I think that was kind of silly, but I thought that led into the next scene that I really enjoyed. Blaze, I know you kind of already gave us your opinion on this final scene, but do you have anything you wanted to add yeah, on how they presented it? Yeah, I just wanted it? to say that it confused the hell out of me. I, I used the word subversion when I first started talking about it. And because I really thought the documentary part was like the subplot. I did not think that was going to be the main driving force of the third act. And it turns into this like whole weird mystery thing of what the guy in Iraq, like how he knew everything. And it just felt disjointed and weird. And then the whole back and forth truth in cinema versus the, you know, lecture that uh, Ben Stiller was giving uh, Adam Driver was just awkward. And then the part that Cole claims that he likes, it felt like they ripped that off like Zoolander or something like that, where Ben Stiller was making this like big grandioso, ha ha, I caught the bad guy. And everyone's like, no, he's not that bad of a guy. He just made the story interesting. So people would, you know, take notice of it. The end of the movie is just like, just so disarrayed. I understand the final scene in the epilogue, they kind of get their own like thing, but shouldn't have that been like the third act of them a getting out of the relationship and, you know, finding their like lives better with an adopted baby. (laughs) All right. So here's what I pulled personally from the end of the film. I feel like we had alluded to earlier that Leslie was an actual father figure to Josh in this film. And as Leslie is standing up there and professing about all of the great things that documentarians do in general, I think the viewer is reminded of that scene as he's getting ready with his daughter and he's talking to himself and he points out so eloquently, I often wonder how I got to where I am. It took being a selfish prick and he talks about how it affected his daughter and his wife. And he also goes on to say he wants what I have, but he's not merciless enough to get it. I think that did a really great job of setting up Ben Stiller's character as a morally straightforward, good person. And while Adam Driver's character may not be that morally straight individual, he, at the end, succeeds. So I think the entire subplot of the film is kind of rolled into this one question, and I'm going to ask all of you this. Is it better to be a good person and live a life of mediocrity, or to be a selfish prick and live a life of success and luxury? Kelly, I want you to start. It's the first one, obviously, because I think that that's also so obvious because he's got his person as well, and she's so clearly his person, and the two of them are really happy together, and they're like best friends, and I think, in my opinion, that's kind of the goal, is just to have your best friend and live a happy life together, because then you can also have all these other friends that you get to just spend the limited time that we have all together. Do you really want to spend your life just slashing and burning and trying to get the best car that you can possibly drive that then isn't going to be worth it once you drive off the lot and then you're going to have to reach for the next best car and then you're going to have to invest in this stock but wait that one actually was a crypto that crashed and you're gonna like which life would you rather have like that or just like hanging out with friends i think that the quote-unquote mediocre getting by that's the that's the way to go. Yeah, I do feel mediocre may not have been the right word to use in this question. Um, I suppose just comparative to what the idea of general success is these days. Eric, what do you think about that question? Is it better to just be a good person or get all the money and run away? I, I guess we're going to get real philosophical at this point. But um, during uh, the pandemic, 
I watched Avatar The Last Airbender, and it got me into Buddhism. Um, and I started listening to podcasts on Buddhism and reading stuff about it. Uh, and kind of the key of Buddhism and, you know, the Four Noble Truths is desire always leads to unhappiness. And the more you desire, the more unhappy you're going to end up being. When you get some money, you're never going to uh, stop wanting more money. You know, the, the, this kind of lust for power, lust for uh, wealth. Um, there's no end to it. And the the kind of underlying thought in that is that it can always be taken away. So once you get all of that, and if it's ever taken away, then, um, you know, you're going to end up back at square one again. And it's better to just kind of try to dull your desires and not, not dull, but be at peace um, with a life of less desires and less wanting. And I, I think that that's Kind of a philosophy I try to apply towards life, but maybe not always successfully. Living a life of uh, peace and, you know, not having extreme wealth can be a good thing, you know? Yeah, I think the director made it very obvious right from the very beginning of this film that he wanted the viewer to philosophically look at their own lives and how they are looking at everything in general. And I think he did a really good job of even asking those important questions right to the end of the film. Is it more important to be a good person or to be successful? And I think... We all kind of have a different viewpoint on that, but at the end of the day, you know, it's the golden rule, right? Treat others as you want to be treated, and that's kind of really important. Um, but the last theme I want to talk on is one of those one-liners that we see towards the end of the film as Ben Stiller is getting ready to don the suit jacket and the rollerblades. He's talking to Darby, and they're sitting in the apartment, and Darby kind of offers this commentary where she says, you know, me and Jamie always wondered how we were going to get old. And the answer is just like everybody else. I know a lot of this movie review has been a lot about philosophical questions, and I'm not going to apologize for that because it's kind of what movies are intended for us to do is to look at real-life situations and make it about what we're dealing with in our own day, and that's where the entertainment value of this movie comes in. But did anybody else really feel like that statement kind of stuck out or as something as... as the theme of this film. Cole, did you take anything away from that? You know, growing up, when, you know, you go through all these stages of life and you're, you know, when you're in middle school, you're like, man, once I'm in high school, I'm going to be able to drive. It's going to be fucking awesome. And then once you, you know, you're in high school, you're like, man, once I go to college or turn 21, I'll be able to drink. It's going to be fucking awesome. And, you know, there's always like all these steps and stuff and you're always kind of looking towards. But then once you reach like now, we're all just kind of at the age where you're just, existing and you just kind of get older and the way she says it so like bluntly kind of is like yeah i mean it just it is what it is like i don't understand fear of turning 30 you know i'm 28 i'm gonna be turning 30 in a couple years but that you know what, what the fuck does that matter why does that matter like you know we all get old it's it's what you know it's more of what you're doing with your life and the experiences that you you see and do along the way and yeah, if I turn 30 and I don't feel like I've seen things or done things or done things that have made me happy or have lived a life that I'm, you know, happy or proud of, then maybe I would think more about it. But, you know, we all grow old. You just got to do what makes you happy and what you want to do. You got to stop worrying about the number and start focusing on what philosophically, like what makes you you and why why you want to do that. Who cares how old you are? Fuck 
humans have been around for thousands of years. It's not like keeping track of age hasn't really been a thing until, you know, the last couple hundred years. So, like, fucking move on. Damn straight. Move on. Blaze, anything you wanted to add to that question of uh, is age just a number? Well, I took that statement as completely different. So I kind of do have something to say. I thought it took as because she was going back to her hometown. She was leaving uh, Jamie or Adam Driver. Um, and I took it as, you know, we how we're going to grow old together. And I think she means like we're all going to die alone because they had this, you know, by, you know, if I was 25, you know, that would be a Peter, pretty picturesque relationship on the outside, at least how they presented themselves. And when it turns out they had like real internal problems like everyone else, she realized that there is no storybook ending. There is only you can only look out for yourself. And at the end of the day, no matter who you love. It's all we're we're all going to be six feet under one day, and that's how I took it. So I, not as you know. Hey, but that's a, a good opinion and a good lookout. Like it's very realistic. It's very driven, and like yeah, you're right. We're all going to die, and we're all going to die the same way, and we're all going to be in the ground one way or another. All right, let's bring this a little bit to a conclusion. So we're in our final scene. We see Josh and Cornelia at the airport, about to fly off and adopt their new child. When Cornelia opens one of the 10 magazines she buys for a four-hour flight, I call bullshit, by the way, and I know Cole agrees with me on this one, she opens up to a page with the title, What You Should Know About Jamie Massey, in Vanity Fair's Hollywood blog section. Cornelia comments, well, it's out there. The evil is unleashed. And Josh replies, he's not evil. He's just young, as they stare oddly at the small child using the cell phone across from them. (laughs) Fade to black. So, our final scene touches on the first scene with the the fun text about the commentary on the youth versus the old, and it really brings it all together. So I ask, what did you think of that ending? Did you get the resolution as the viewer, and were you happy to see Jamie eventually getting the success he worked so hard to achieve? I think that... Are we all familiar with Uncanny Valley? When... No. It's, it's when... It, Typically used for like animation or design, like when something's so close to being a human but doesn't quite make it and it makes you feel weird inside. When Shrek came out, a lot of people said they felt that way about the way that the humans were animated. So the uncanny valley for me is seeing that baby use the cell phone like that. It's extremely odd. And the fact that they use the sound effects as if it is really going to town and knowing exactly what it's doing. I've It's a funny but very unsettling way to finish it, and I love that they place the camera directly across from our main characters, so they're, like, looking at us. So it's a little bit of a fourth wall break. It's a little bit of a, and where are you going to go with what we just had to say to you? And also check out this (laughs) unsettling baby. Like, (laughs) it's it's a, I thought it was a strong ending. After what we previously discussed, for me, was a bit of a weak um third third act of the movie i think that the ending uh came back around and it put it back in that kind of clever humor that makes me feel weird inside awesome i love that feeling uh eric what's what up you, you cool baby as they would say in my <laughs> brother my brother my and me favorite podcast second um, favorite this is my favorite <laughs> yeah so uh yeah, I, well, yeah, that ending with the the child like texting, I actually really like that. It definitely uh, had absurdity to it, and I, I feel like it. Um, I I liked the absurdity of that child. What what did I take away from it? 
I think they're trying to say like life is cyclical in a way that that baby, you know, he's just young, just like everyone else, you know, and life is a bit cyclical. I the adopting the child that felt very easy to me, Uh, like an easy ending, easy conclusion to the film. Uh, I wanted them to hit it home with a little bit more of a difficult point to really round out these characters in the end, I think. I feel like that would have made it a little bit more A24 for me. Um, I agree with you. Just like, nope, it's okay to be single and not have kids. Like That can be a commentary. We don't necessarily have to wrap it up in this nightly little bow. I agree. Cole, what did you think about the ending? Yeah, so uh, I'm glad Eric brought up the like a kid adoption thing because I, I thought I really hated it to be honest. I really was disappointed, and uh, the scene where they were staring at the kid with the phone and it was like the uncanny valley and made me very unsettled. And I'm like watching it. I'm like, this is really weird. And I I genuinely thought that they were gonna see that and be like, this fuck this kid and they just fucking leave the airport and not adopt the kid like that's where i thought it was gonna go because i was like this is a 24 but then this just ends and it's like now nah, they probably went and adopted the kid but i'm gonna get out a little bit of a soapbox with like the whole like I, I, it pissed me off with them getting the kid because they're in their 40s they've been married for a long time and they don't have kids why don't they have kids and you know they talked about how they went through the shots and they tried and they had miscarriages and all that stuff and it's just like one thing that always uh like a pet peeve or irks me is uh you know I'm, I'm a person that doesn't plan on having kids and isn't you know necessarily looking to have any ever and uh but i get asked all the time by people because you know i've been with my girlfriend for many years now and it's like well, when, are you, when are you guys gonna get married when are you gonna have kids and stuff and it's like why does that matter to you and, and i hated the parts where their friends that had the kid kept bugging them about when they're gonna have kids and it's like you don't know if that person is capable you don't know what they've gone through like like how awful must that person feel like they physically cannot have the capability to have a child and you're just sitting there badgering them basically telling them that if they don't have a kid they're not like a part of society or you know you're not going to be a part of their friend group or i don't know i just it always bothers me and then at the end they just kind of were like yeah fuck it they're gonna go adopt a kid instead of you know being you know uh still a happy couple in their 40s that just doesn't have a child like a child doesn't have to be the reason that you are like a happy family and can continue your life after you're 40 so that really pissed me off but that oh, oh. yeah up next, i think eric had the perfect answer for this um the way that uh cole expounded on his uh the ending was too neat uh where i think obvious child went the right route and she said i'm not gonna have this baby and guess what she didn't have the baby um they have this like weird uh epiphany where they need a baby um so they go and adopt one wasn't very a24 like you said kevin and then i think eric really did a good job on hitting on the uh secular part of uh how uh you know the cycle continues and i think if that movie had continued another characters had moved on a couple you know more years Ben Stiller would have turned into his father-in-law and would have turned unironically cool. And then Adam Driver would be ironically uncool. And then, you know, the kid would take it Adam Driver's license. And that's, you know, the circle of life, it continues. We're never going to get off this um, life, uh, life stream. And uh, we can only hope to be better as people. But yeah, 
too neat of an ending. I feel like the adoption angle was a signal to the viewer that these two individuals have learned from, we'll call it their mistakes, of not moving forward with their desire to have a family. Yes, they struggled with the miscarriages and they struggled with all of the different things that go through with it, but they had just settled on just being the couple that wasn't going to have kids even though they wanted them. They talk about through the film that they definitely want to have kids, but they just haven't the opportunity to. And now after meeting Jamie and Darby, they've kind of developed this idea that they have the capability of doing it, that they're not just resolved to whatever life they feel like they had. They can do something different. They can take the lessons they learned from um, Fletcher and his wife and from Jamie and Darby, and they can do something different which is enriching their lives with a child, even at the age of 43, 44. I did enjoy the way they buttoned it up, and I just felt like it gave redemption almost to the characters, and it allowed us to feel like they had learned something kind of from their experiences and moved forward with that. I also understand where you guys are coming from on the idea of, if you're going to commit to the idea of being 30-something, 40-something without a kid, stick to that idea. Stick to that commitment. It's okay. That commentary is still valid for movies in general and just in life. Like, it's okay not to want children, as Cole alluded to. We each have our own paths and we each do what we want to do. And I think that's really, really poignant. All right. We wrapped it up. We're moving on. It's time for ratings. Kelly, I want you to go first. Go ahead. Tell us what you think. Where did this land for you on our A24 scale? Okay. Uh, If it wasn't A24, I would probably consider rating it higher. So that's how I feel about that so far. The things that I liked about this movie, I liked the hyper editing that Eric said that he didn't like so much. I think that it makes it a really like modern movie. And I think that it's something that I appreciate. It's very contemporary for me. And even when this becomes outdated, I think it's still something that for my tastes is what I like very much. I liked the clever humor. I liked that there's a lot of quotable pieces of this we talked on my two favorite scenes and another one that i like uh, that i feel like is so relatable to people that are wanting to have children is everybody tells you that it's so exciting to have one and then as soon as you have the baby they're like don't worry it gets better soon and it's these kind of things that i feel like we kind of touched on makes it relatable to a lot of people who are watching it and i think that that's a really well-written movie that can do that. I thought that the characters were all really quite strong, if not over-exaggerated, but that's okay because it's also, it's a comedy. Like, it needs to be. We need to laugh at ourselves and at these caricatures of the other people that we can recognize in our lives. Another thing I wanted to write on, or note on, was the writing of both the men and women for me was really strong. I feel like in a lot of movies... It maybe feels like a little more realistic one way or the other. Uh, this one has very realistic guys and their kind of conflicts, even just between the guys. It's realistic between men and women, and it's realistic just the women talking to women. So all of that I thought was really strong as well. But where it doesn't really work for me was especially that third act that we've touched on a few times. I just feel like so many things were going so well, and then they walk like just kind of bundled up a lot of conflict as quickly as they could in like a little 15 to 20 minute span and it just did not work for me and it really took me out of the movie whereas before I was so engaged and caring about everybody I just it's too much too fast at that point it just got a little too messy okay 
all of that said, um, where I am feeling this one, it went higher as we're talking about it, and it would be something I recommend. I think that also having seen it a second time, that you're going to take something different from it each time, especially as you get older, because that's the whole pretext of the film. So as I go on and on and on, I'm saying B minus 24. Solid. Blaze, I know I usually go to you last in these circumstances, but I want you to go next. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, Kelly said a lot of how I feel about this movie. Uh, There are definitely some things that I really, really, really love about this movie. I think, you know, I've already liked Adam Driver for a long time, but just the way that he acts, like, with his body, you know, like, he doesn't have to say a word and you know exactly uh, the emotion that he's conveying. The The set production, like I said, was great. The premise is amazing, and... The parts about the documentary is someone who's not a filmmaker, the way they explored how filmmaking is like presented, especially in this, you know, grassroots documentarian kind of way. I really, really, really enjoyed that. I think that should be a premise for other movies, hopefully down the line. Ad-Rock was in it, which was great. And then I don't know if this was uh, a compliment or a diss, but that uh, beer that Adam Driver was holding like this was a PBR. So that's the second PBR appearance. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I guess I kind of like that as someone who loves PBR. <laughs> Definitely, uh, Kelly said, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it fell apart in the third act. Did it feel like they should have done something else with it? I mean, that's just the honest to God truth. But there was a lot, lot of strong things going for it. And I'm going to give it a solid C24. All right, Cole, you're up. Yeah, so uh, again, the 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 first seventy five percent of this movie, I I enjoyed and I loved it. I thought it was very well done. The last twenty five percent just kind of fell apart. I'm a big fan of the slice of life. I loved a lot of the feelings and the vibes that I got from this film. Uh, I just wish the final execution was better. Um, also, they dissed the Goonies, which is just like insane to me. Uh, but they and they did like a lot of you know I, I liked the deep dive kind of into like documentaries and and the film edited and all that stuff and uh, I I really enjoyed a lot of the jokes and kind of the stuff that was thrown in throughout the film. Um, all in all, I enjoyed the movie uh, quite a bit. Uh, I don't know if I would recommend it to all of my friends. I would probably recommend it to certain ones that I you know, know would probably enjoy this more than the other others. But with the way that it ended with the adoption and kind of like a cop-out feel, and didn't really feel, it didn't feel real to me, I guess, is the ending. Like, the ending just didn't feel real, while the first two halves or first two acts felt real. The last didn't, and kind of took me out of it. So I'm, I'm with you, Blaze. I gave it a C24 as well. All right, Eric, what do you think? Um, yeah, I you know, like, have hit home some of these points already, but uh, it was definitely well-written at points. Like, Noah Baumbach, he is a really talented writer and director. I just don't think that this was his uh, piece de resistance. And I I think, yeah, the hyper-editing at points, it kind of, it took me out of it, and it it felt, like, a bit all over the place. Like, he was trying to jam a lot of ideas into each scene, and it didn't um, hold it long enough for me to take home i think i was just thinking about this like why i didn't like adam uh adam driver's character as a person he reminds me of uh every fucking hipster in detroit um that moved there in the last <laughs> 10 years so uh that they kind of annoy me a little bit sometimes anyway so yeah it 
it didn't flow. There wasn't a lot of rhythm to it as much as other uh, Noah Baumbach films. So I think in the end, uh, I can appreciate the writing and I can appreciate his directorial style, but I cannot think it's his best work, which will also land me at a C24. All right. And that brings it to me. Uh, oftentimes when I'm watching these A24 films in general or I'm watching something to review, I'm being a little more critical and I'm taking myself out of the film. I can say with all certainty that this film kept me engaged and made me feel included in the movie the entire time. Maybe because of my certain age and my life and my perspective on my family future and all of those things, but I really enjoyed the characters, their commentary, kind of what they were saying on life, and how I mentioned earlier in the pod that I just wrote too real on the top as much as possible. That's when I know a movie has done its job, when it makes me feel something, when it makes me actually want to talk about it. This would be one of our longest episodes, and I think it's relevant because this movie has a lot to talk about and has a lot to say outside of the script, outside of the cinematography, outside of the director. It's relevant even seven years after the fact, even more relevant today than it was when it was created. And for that fact, if a movie can stand the test of time and continue to be something that we can watch later on, I think that makes it even better. It's something that I'll recommend to my friends a lot because of the cast, something that they can relate to in Ben Stiller and Adam Driver and um, something that in general, I think a lot of people can take something away from. Whether you have kids, whether you have a family or not, this movie has a little bit of everything for you. Um, and if you haven't seen it while listening to this podcast, I, I do recommend that you take the time to, to do so. Uh, it was one of the more enjoyable films for me that we've watched. While it did have some drawbacks, uh, I really did enjoy it, and I will be giving it a B plus 24. With that, if anybody else has anything they would like to throw in, this has been a enlightening episode. Thank you all for joining me, and uh, have a great night. It needed Adam Driver riding a horse with his shirt <laughs> off. That's what it really needed. I mean, I agree. Just like that GQ shoot. Hell yeah.